Refugee families land here with their, they have to start running. Nobody has time to read what, what to expect when you're expecting. Nobody is sitting there thinking, am I guilt tripping my child by weaponizing God? No, she has to learn English. I have to learn enough English to find out how to buy her lunch tickets at school. I've probably only tried to be free and feel free for maybe the last six months. Three decades on earth finally started, and I'm, I'm not even halfway there. Unshackle you a little bit. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Happy Passover, everyone. Welcome to another episode of See One Beautiful Soul. I am so grateful that I am free to speak and create a podcast during the week of Passover. I know that my great-grandmother, Sarah, who escaped from Russia in 1906, is just dancing up in heaven because her great-granddaughter is a free American citizen and is using her voice to unite the entire world with a podcast. She probably doesn't even know what a podcast is, but great-grandmother Sarah, I promise it's really for the good. Thanks for escaping so that I could be free and live here. This episode is all about what it means to be a refugee and what it means to have true freedom. One of the reasons I created this podcast was to empower people to be as free as possible by forgiving themselves, the Almighty, and also other people in their life who may have caused them hardship or challenges. As you know, forgiveness to me is the most underrated value that we probably have. I also usually ask all of my guests, what is one key to freedom? So it was apropos that during this week of Passover, the holiday in which the Jewish people became a nation and 20% of us actually left Egypt, 80% stayed back because they were too afraid to face the unknown. But the 20% that left were able to go out into the desert following Moses and the idea of this thing called God and creating something new, something free. Although Tabby is not from Egypt, she did escape Iran with her family, and I am so enamored of her story that I thought it would be a great time to share it. Please join me on Instagram at Barbie Heller, B-A-R-B-I-E-H-E-L-L-E-R, for some inspirational content that will hopefully make you laugh, might make you cry. I've got some interesting posts on there. I'm doing about one to three per day, and I would love to hear what you think about it. DM me, like it, comment. Let's start a conversation. If you would like to join one of my workshops or have a one-on-one coaching privately with me, you can try me at info at barbheller.com. That's an email address, info at barbheller.com. I might be able to help you with your voiceover training or creating TED Talk or something inspirational that you want to just get out. I'm pretty good at helping people with that. You can also pick up a copy of my book and then One Day the World Coughed on Amazon.com. Just look for Barbara Heller and then One Day the World Coughed and you can get it on Kindle, although I prefer the actual soft cover copy of it mailed to my door. And now without further ado, sit back, relax, or if you're doing exercise, enjoy walk, run, jog, biking, pelotoning, as you allow yourself to connect to my friend Tabby Raphael and her amazing story of escaping what holds her back from freedom in this episode of See One Beautiful Soul. 
Tavi, it is so good to see you. Great to see you. My friend, my confidant, my spiritual warrior. One of the funniest, deepest poets, bloggers, and novelists that I know. Wow, where were you when I was making my J-Date profile? Great mom and wife. Amazing cook and hostess. Barb, please, this is turning into a eulogy. I I can't. Can you please tell a little bit of your story before you came to America? Wow. Well, thank you so much for having me. Even if I had just met you this morning, I would have already been very impressed by your compassion, true, true intellectual and soul level curiosity over anyone you meet, and also by the professional aspects of this podcast. So thank you to you. Thank you to your associate producer. I am a Los Angeles-based writer, speaker, and activist. I was born in the peace capital of the world, Tehran. So funny. (laughs) What? The the Iranian Ministry of Public Affairs is going to send you a very mean letter that you laughed at that. It is the peace capital of of the world. I don't know why you would think that things like genocide calls and enriching uranium don't stand for peace. And it's very actually hard for me to laugh and not cry at that because if I actually think about it for more than 10 seconds, I will cry, which is why I'm laughing. But I, I read your Facebook posts. So I know that just yesterday you posted about a woman who had acid thrown on her face because her hijab wasn't on properly. So that's why I started laughing. Yeah, I know. Well, I was born there and I was born after the 1979 revolution. So I'm a child of the 80s. Not the 80s that you Americans associate with, which by the way, I'm still learning about the 80s because I missed that entire decade. We came in June 1989 as protected refugees to the US. So I had six months of the 80s. And most of that involved Mr. T. And I don't know if he was <laughs> I don't that explains know. a lot because we're going to get into this later, I hope. But Tabby is also a gifted rapper. And when she was in high school, she had a very silly nickname. By high school, the rap was and eh, it was on its way down. But middle school was really, you know, midnight. So I was a child of that revolution, you know, born in the 1980s in post-revolutionary Iran. And I don't know how much your listeners know about Middle East politics, but Iran was effectively a secular monarchy until 1979. We're talking millennia of dynasties. And in 1979, which is a big year for anybody studying the Middle East, the Taliban and Afghanistan, you have the Islamic revolution in Iran, where the Shah of Iran, who was a secular king, a monarch, a very westernizing force, was uh, effectively ousted and replaced by a man named the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was every Iranian child answer to the boogeyman, fanatic Shiite cleric. And he and his posse basically turned Iran into an official Muslim country, which meant that Sharia or Islamic law came into play, which meant that the mandatory hijab or head covering for women, whether they were Jewish, Christian, Zoroastrian, Muslim, came into effect, which meant you were now standing in classrooms across the country, playgrounds screaming death to Israel and death to America as part of official curriculum and policy, practically. You know, so um, my mother, you know, threw away all of her t-shirts uh, went and bought as many headscarves as she could. And then like millions of other Iranian women learned how to tie them on. I, I say pretty much I was born into the headscarf because you see her generation had something to compare to. This is one of the life, uh, life lessons for me. It, you can manage your expectations if you know what you're comparing to. And she was really miserable after the revolution because imagine, you know, decades of having had her glory years of in Iran, let's say under the Shah in the 60s and 70s and pop music and 
you know, the Beatles and beehives and mini skirts. And then you get in 1979, an actual Islamic overhaul of society, right? To the point where you have to leave the house in an Islamic head covering, even as a Jew, and in these long jackets and very modest clothes that we, we, you, we would call a manteau from the French word of, of like a long coat, basically. And it's not just that um, these were forced upon you. That would have been one thing. It was the consequences of breaking those laws that really made lo- you know, life miserable. And we can get into that a little bit. But um, this is what I was born into. I was also born into the Iran-Iraq war, which Americans don't know about. They've never heard of. I, I can't blame them, though, for Iranians. That is like the defining aspect of the 1980s because there was a war between 1980 and 1988. An eight-year-long war, a million dead. Some of the last prisoners of war from that war weren't released until 2003. I'm a child survivor of the Iran-Iraq war, not because I was out in the field, though some of the little boys actually were sent out into the field to find landmines on the Iraqi side. They were given little plastic keys, gold keys around their necks, called the keys to heaven. Because if they had found the landmine and went up to heaven, they would have a key, you know, to get in there. I am a child survivor of the Iran-Iraq war, though, because of the daily bombardments by the Iraqi warplanes against our capital city, Tehran. My husband, who's from Shiraz in the south, is a child survivor of the Iran-Iraq war. That colored, of course, a lot of my life narrative of my understanding to things. And this all happened before I was 10 years old. I was born into an Islamic revolution, born into an Ayatollah Khomeini and then born into a war. We came to the U.S. in 1989 as protected refugees, but of course it wasn't that easy. Um, Iran had no relations with the U.S. after the November 1979 embassy takeover. Anybody who's seen Argo knows what I'm referring to. So you couldn't just hop on a plane from Tehran and land in JFK. It didn't work like that. There was no embassy. There was no relation. Iran was calling America the great Satan. Israel was the little Satan. We had a wonderful organization called HIAS, known then as the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Now the acronym is just HIAS, that helped tens of thousands of Jewish refugees from Iran and then from the former USSR. In a very clandestine but very brilliant, clever way, managed to help us escape Iran. Then we experienced suffering on a different level because suddenly we were refugees. I only heard this story once, but I never mm-hmm. forgot it. The scene in my head, breathtaking and and horrifying. I think I told you this once, but I've shared it with so many of my classes. I've taught Hebrew school for like 20 years. And whenever we learn about the Jewish people and Jewish history having to leave places where there's destruction and people wanting to kill us, which so many times, but also so many other minorities story. So other minorities can relate to this. I always tell this one scene in your life and I'm going to tell the scene and then I want you to really expand on it. You are standing in your living room and you look around for like the last time and the plates are still on the table and the forks and the knives and the napkins and then another scene not too long after is you have one backpack for like your entire family maybe two and you're on your way to italy and your mom has jewels hidden in certain places and you know you're never going back to that house and it's as if you live there and you have to leave it the way that it looks so that they don't suspect that you're not. Yeah. I don't like identity politics, but I do think there's some validity to people in the Jewish community recently saying that there is a more Ashke normative narrative to Jewish history, especially the kind I think kids learn in America. 
So people who are not Jewish listening to this would need to know what Ashkenazi okay. um, Ashkenazi means Jews descending from parts of Europe, such as Germany, Poland. For better lack of a term, something that somebody in the U.S. could possibly define as a white Jew, though I don't know how Ashkenazim define themselves. Some define themselves as non-white Jews because for so many decades, Jews were seen as not white and not really part of the Waspy America. When you think Ashkenazi narrative, think of Seinfeld, secular as he was, but that kind of show. Mel yeah, Mel Brooks, bagels, locks, things I didn't know existed until I came to the U.S., by the way. Yiddish, gefilte fish, which I'm not going to... Let, let's leave that one alone. So this, this narrative, and then you have the Shoah, you have the Holocaust, you have the devastation of the Holocaust, something like which has never occurred in history, not even against the Jewish people who suffered so much, where six million Jews were wiped out, million and a half of them children. But the result of that has been a sort of normalization of a very Ashkenazi narrative of Jewish history. And you know what? Some of it is rightly so, because non-Ashkenazi Jews, and there are a few primary categories, Sephardim, you've probably heard some of you heard of Sephardic Jews. These are Jews whose ancestors can really be traced back to Spain, maybe Portugal a little later, but particularly Spain. And another type of Jews are the Mizrahim, of which I'm technically part of that category. Some people call them Jews of the Middle East and North Africa. And Persian Jews, we never went to Spain. History is very linear. It doesn't branch out onto a million different trees. I have Ashkenazi friends who's your ancestry. Okay, my paternal grandfather is from Poland. My maternal grandmother is from Ukraine. You ask a Persian Jew, where are your grandparents from? And they're probably going to say, they're from Iran. Where are your great-grandparents from? They were from Persia, which, which was originally Iran before the 1935 name change. Every ancestor I had has basically been a Persian Jew because after the fall of the first temple, after the first temple fell, many of those Jews were brought into Babylonian captivity. When King Cyrus the Great, who was, this is before Islam even arrived to then the, the then Persian Empire, um, was king, he took in, uh, you know, these captives as his own because he conquered Babylon. So they affect moved into the, his Persian empire. And then one night, it, the story goes that King Cyrus had a dream. Now, I believe King Cyrus is Zoroastrian. So God comes to him in a dream and tells him, release your Jews. And it's not that we were, some people debate whether we were slaves and how captive we actually were. We, if we, they don't think we were like in chains, you know. God came to King Cyrus in a dream and the story goes and told him, release your, your Jewish uh, subjects, give them the choice to go back to Jerusalem to build a temple for me. And he woke up and felt that imperative and he released an edict and he said, Jews who are my subjects, if you want to go back to Jerusalem and build your temple, go ahead, have me in mind. Go ahead. Now, this is where it gets funny. My ancestors and the ancestors of Persian Jews, as you know them, whether in L.A. or on the East Coast or anywhere in the world, you know, Toronto, they didn't quite get that memo. And if they did, they were enjoying the hanging gardens and peacocks yeah. and, the, and the kebab and the saffron. And maybe next year. You know what? I'm busy right now. Can I go to Jerusalem tomorrow? Ugh. They didn't really quite make it back and they stayed. And that's why you've got to, Jewish community in then Persia, which is amongst the oldest, if not the oldest minority community in what was then Persia. People believe that the Persian Jewish community is the oldest Jewish diaspora community in the world. 
almost everyone knows about the Holocaust. It's unbelievable to me how many young Americans and Poles haven't heard of words like Auschwitz, for example. You assume that this narrative of the wandering Jew is either two things, someone who was expelled from Spain in 1492 or someone who's suffering the greatest of inhumanity imaginable in the 1930s and 40s. Mm. And I'm here to say the concept of the wandering Jew did not end after World War II. How do I know that? Because I was a wandering Jew in 1989. I'm not for identity politics, but really nobody knows the history or even a little bit of Jews outside of what we think of Ashkenazi and Ashkenazi culture. And if they do, they'll reduce us down to, you know, a little stereotype about something like, ah, Persian Jews, yeah, you know, they're the one who go, which is true. We love that. But there's a 2,700 year old history there. So what was it like standing there right (sighs) after you leave a house where your mom's like, leave everything the way it is, Tevi? Like, that's a bad example of your mom, but not bad. We had a living room that looked out into the street, which was a liability for us whenever we wanted to have dinner parties because parties for us, for, for my family, were mixed sexes, male and female, Persian pop music, which was banned after the Islamic Revolution, bootleg being, being played on our stereo by cassette tape, being made by exiled Persian artists in L.A., who had escaped by that point. A woman taking off their manteau and their chador, wearing their glamorous dresses that showed shoulders and arms, perished the thought. And I don't mean to say that cynically. I know that modesty is aspect too, but when it's forced down your throat the way it is under an Islamic revolution, it's something I take great issue to. The living room looked out into the street, which is one of the reasons we got very heavy-duty curtains for when we closed them whenever we had the dinner parties. They were soundproof. We soundproofed the living room too. Imagine soundproofing the living room because you want have a you know a dinner party that day we left them open we left them open and the table was set with china flowers nice forks and knives obviously no goblets because alcohol was also banned per islam's prohibition after the revolution we set the table as if you know there was going to be a dinner party or something important happening that night i want to tell you that it felt like the end but i can't and let me tell you why because in a region as volatile as the Middle East and in a country like Iran that had one coup after another, I don't think my parents saw it as the end of the end. I can't fairly paint you a picture as though we were standing there thinking we will never see people like my grandparents again. We, we weren't even exactly thinking that. In fact, that would have softened the blow for me. Somebody had told me these cousins that you grew up with, the aunts that raised you, your grandfather, your grandmother, all of these people you'd never see again. That would have softened the blow for me because I would have at least been able to say, we'll see you next year or we'll be back. Save my stuffed animal in my room for me. Don't play with my toys and say, thank you for being my grandmother. Thank you for your unconditional love. Please find a way to stay in touch with me in America. I said, don't let anybody touch my room. Why? Because in a country as volatile politically as Iran, you didn't know if you would be back within six months or six years. We didn't know how long their revolutionary government was going to stay around. And we were especially driven out by the Iran-Iraq war. As it happened, the war ended a few weeks after we left. We actually didn't leave with two suitcases. We're Persian, Barb. And you know what was in them? China, a couple, some toys and things, really nice silverware that we, my mother still has and uses. And listen, the really important stuff, kebab skewers, and they didn't really have all detectors. So those Persian skewers went into that suitcase and through security. I've got Persian skewers from Iran in my house. You know what I don't have? My birth certificate. 
Nobody thought to bring the damn thing. No, it's funny. Listen, you can't get a more Persian story than that. <laughs> we escaped out of the country with China plates and kebab skewers and my mom's like fabulous dresses. But somebody forgot to leave Tabby's birth certificate lying somewhere around. I didn't have one. I couldn't even prove I was born. I was applying, you know, decades later to colleges and the UC schools in California. I didn't know how to prove I was born. Here, I'm filling this application out. Is that proof here? You know? I still don't have a birth certificate. So it's not that we even left with like, you know, two suitcases. We left with a hell of a lot of stuff. And of course that tipped off the authorities at the airport because we told them we were going on a six month vacation to Europe to get away from the war. But I want you to take off your American hat for a minute and put on your Middle East hat. If you can, and for your readers, you see, it's not that complicated. Yeah, there you go. It's not that complicated to try to um, escape from a country while pretending you're not escaping, even if you have 15 suitcases. Is it terrifying? Yes. Could they stop you at any point? Yes. The thing is, you're in the Middle East, so you bribe people. You bribe officers at the gate. You bribe the ones taking your tickets. You bribe the ones checking your passports. You do a little bit of side hustle deals. And they let you take, you know, your 15 suitcases along with you. And uh, basically a lot of people know that you probably ain't coming back. We weren't, you know, we, I'm surprised that this, despite the fact that my parents didn't know if we'd return, I think they did think, by the way, that we would come back. I, I really believe that. Um, that they still packed so much. By the way, a lot of those were suitcases of gifts and things they wanted to bring and requests that are family who were either in transit as refugees in Italy or had already made it to the U.S. had asked my mom to bring back, bring back some Persian saffron. We can't find any of the good stuff here in L.A., you know? Now, did they own the home that you left or were they? Of course. It? And so they never got the money. Are you kidding? No. But if you ask my dad, the value of, you know, of tens of thousands of dollars that back then that you lost in a home that you had from a, and he left his, by the way, he left his manufacturing company too. You got up and you left all of that. He'll tell you, I would have done it for even five times as much lost money because I was able to take my two daughters out of the country. Another vision I have of you, you told me once and that my mouth was just, I couldn't like close it. For a while um, that was because serving i was serving you delicious food that's true she's an incredible cook story of you sitting on the front stoop of your mm. old place and all of a sudden you know you're talking to your sister and above your head you start to see rockets and you take cover you were like four or five six. yeah six the iran iraq war was waging on for far more many years than people thought it would. And if anybody wants to know what it was about, just Google it. And Saddam Hussein did the unthinkable. He launched the war of the city, which meant now he wasn't just targeting people in the country. He was actually sending Iraqi warplanes over Tehran, the capital city, Shiraz, a lot of the other uh, very metropolitan areas. There were curfews in place every night or uh, sonic booms. At night, we turned off all the lights in the house everywhere in the neighborhood so that the neighborhood could be dark. That actually, I believe, made things worse because then the bombs fell indiscriminately. I still, to this day, have some PTSD-related issues with ambulances and fire trucks and sirens because to me, they still signal the warning signs all over the city, all over through Tehran. 
of the bombard- bombardments coming in. Let me tell you something about being caught beneath the merciless grasp of a warplane. You know what it is, you, Barb? You, you feel like an Who is going to protect you from a warplane dropping missiles? There's almost nowhere you can even cover. That's that helpless feeling of an ant with a powerful force above your head is one of my own life narratives. Like I would have been a very good part of the Hunger Games. You throw me out into somewhere where it's, you know, eat or be eaten, and, and, and I'll take care of myself. I'll, I'll hide in some nest somewhere. And I remember sitting on the stoop of our house. It was a really cold morning, and I, ha- I was holding our transistor radio in my hands, clutching it, because that was my only piece of sense of comfort in knowing whether they were coming to our neighborhood or not. My dad opens the door from outside and he's begging me to come back inside because it was, you know, Tehran has real cold seasons. It's not desert weather all the time. We have snow. He's begging me to come inside, but I can't because I have to hear the sound of this transistor radio with the warnings of whether we need to duck or cover or whether they're coming. And something interesting happened. And I wrote about this in my memoir if I finish it and get it published, God willing. Oh, you will. And you're going to come back and you're going to promote it. Thank you. I was sitting outside on the stoop. I was six years old and suddenly I felt like the destiny of this city was in my hands. So I started talking to God. I didn't have a very clear definition of God. The, the term for God in Persian is Khoda or Khodavan. It's not Allah? Allah is the Arabic. Primarily we would speak in Persian. We would say Khoda. Khoda in Hebrew means give thanks, which is such a beautiful name. For really? Yeah, that's so nice. And I would say, Khoda, please make the warplanes drop like flies. Keep them far away from the city. Keep them away from the school. I need to be able to go to school. At six years old, you had that clear. Keep them away from our dove. We had a little dove aviary. Persian, you know, Persians and their birds. By the way, uh, Tabby's spirit animal is a bird. And that's also her Hebrew name. And she is a bird. Okay, keep going. Thank you. Um, (laughs) It's not, it's not something to think. It just is. And at her wedding, she had bird cages on every table and it was the most exquisite. I'd never seen anything like it. There were birds everywhere. Thank you. Well, my husband and I paid for our wedding. We didn't want to burden our parents, nor could they really help us that much, which goes to show you not all Persian Jews are the way that people think that they are. We don't have to even clarify what I mean by that. So I had to go to downtown in LA and the crafts, you know, the sections and the stores and buy those bird cages. And my mom and I wrapped, you know, silk flowers around them. I mean, that's the story behind that. So there I was six years old. I developed a very bad habit right then, which I've kept on for life, unfortunately, which is somehow believing that I can get Hashem and get God and, and yeah, God to do my bidding. And, and in that sense, it was too much for ask for not only any six-year-old, but it's something that's also stayed with me still. You know, I'm in my 30s now, which is almost this essence of if I behave a certain way or say the right words and, you know, the right prayer, somehow some kind of harsh, uh, you know, reality will be nullified against me, right? Somehow the bad things won't happen. That's a lot of pressure. Well, I put it on myself, I think. I put it on myself. Um, even as a six-year-old, you know, still to this day, you know, it's, it's something that I just can't shake. I forget my prayers. Is my foot going to be run over by a bus, God forbid, the next day? There's a very um, Eastern element to the way a lot of Persian Jews, Barb, think about Judaism, superstitious way that also a lot of us think about Judaism. Growing up in Iran, even though we were Jews, I think a lot of aspects of um, of an unforgiving, harsh God 
sometimes portrayed, not always, by the Muslim community that we were around affected the way the Jews of Iran developed a relationship with their own God, which was not what I found when I came to America. When I was in my 20s, I rediscovered Judaism, took a lot of classes in LA, and I discovered, wait a minute, most religious American Jews believe in a kind God that loves them. What? In Iran, and and it followed me here, God was omnipresent, saw everything that you did, and could strike you down with that metaphoric lightning at any whim. And the lightning he sent was those Iraqi warplanes. And I wrote a column about this for the Jewish Journal last year. It got a lot of traction and it was shared a lot because I think it's something people can identify with, which is my mom's understanding of a deity, of an omnipresent God, was one that always saw what you did. He just saw the way you spoke to me. I want you to know he heard how you just spoke to me. He saw that I'm sitting on the couch crying here because of you, because you, Tabby, yelled at me. It was a weaponization of religion, but I don't ever hold it against her because she knew nothing else. And I truly believe that her mother did that to her and her great-grandmother did that to her mother. They didn't know. I am trying to break the chain. Last uh, holiday of Sukkot, which is the festival of, um, you know, the huts and, and Jews will make, you know, temporary huts and sit, to, uh, sit outside for them. We were invited to a friend. This was before the pandemic. We were invited to a friend's sukkah or hut, as we say. And um, his daughter was being a little bit mischievous. She was probably three years old. And he turned to her and he meant well. And he said, and he's also like a Jew from the Middle East. And he said, Hashem saw what you just did. I cringed. And in that moment, I know he came from a good place. I know he did. I vowed in that moment that I would never weaponize God like that to to our own sons who right now are four and two years old. I let me tell you something, Barb, I would rather my sons know nothing about God at, at, at this early age, which they do, we talk about, you know, God loves you and Shabbat Shalom, Baruch Hashem, all of these statements. I would rather my sons at an early age know nothing about God than to have their definition of God defined for them as somebody punitive, somebody whom you can never please. You understand? There are enough people in our lives that we already cannot please. We don't need to add God as part of that mixture. If I cannot ever please you, what am I going to do? I'm done with you. There's nothing I can ever do that's good enough for you. But here's my question. Is there any room for saying that in a positive way? Like now, during the pandemic, it's the first time that we, especially as Americans, in this last hundred years, or not even hundred, maybe 60, kids are saying, maybe I should look into religion. Because is there something that we're not doing right? I mean, I wrote yeah. this book, and then one day the world's cough. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you. But one of the pictures was actually inspired by you. Really? So there's this picture of a boy who has a different color skin. We don't, he's like kind of orangey brown. There's 41 panels of painting and only two people in it are pictured with like very white skin and everyone else, what we are, peach, orange, yellow, yeah. pink, yeah. purple, green, black, brown, like all kinds of colors, right? Suntanned LA orange. Yeah, yeah Trump orange, whatever it is. If you read the, the bubble, it actually says, there's a, there's a guy in a military suit and he says, 
you can't create that, love that person, vote that way, learn in school, get that mortgage, play outside, talk to them, dream that big or pray that way. You aren't allowed. You don't matter. If you look really closely, he has tears trickling down his face and then there's a giant one on his shirt. The reason I did that panel is because I was thinking about war. And in war, the people make the rules in the moment. A Nazi will, like my friend Danny's example, brilliant example, will throw a baby up in the air and shoot it, God forbid. Just, the, just saying it makes my skin curdle. We don't know from war because everything's free and easy and convenient in the States, right? Mm -hmm. We get upset when we have to wear a mask in the street mm -hmm. or some people are, are refusing to. And so my, my question is, you know, I have said sometimes I'm guilty now that I'm, you said this, I'm really guilty. I'm thinking about like how I say it sometimes in front of my students, if they're acting really nasty, right? I, I deal with middle school students and they have that chip on their shoulder. I might say, you know, there's, there's an ever loving omnipresent being watching every move you make it's it's almost frightening right to think about that but what if god the universe the divine spirit was doing it because that being loved you so much and wanted you to always as much as you possibly could make a good choice this is the problem you see most parents stop it at there's someone watching you most of the ones who want to evoke the religion yeah you that's have to, you, you, you have to add the other part that that you are being looked at with love with a loving lens so let so that's a brilliant question you asked me let me tell you what i'm trying to do with my own children i'm a big believer in responsibility and accountability but more than anything i believe in choices and what i'm trying to teach our kids who are little they're two they're four is uh when they when they think they've made a good choice and when they think maybe they've made a not so good choice or a bad choice right when one of them pushes the other, I say, what, what kind of choice do you think that was? I think that was a bad choice. I, I've never told them God what, saw what you just did. I will, I subtly send them a message that there is accountability for what they do in the following way. I use positive language. I'm not a child psychologist, but I use positive language and I, I don't tell them, Hashem, Hashem gets sad. God gets sad when you hate your brother. Oh my God, who wants that kind of responsibility? I made God sad? That's not even, I think, a Jewish concept, this, this notion of, you know. But I, what I'll tell them is I'll flip it on the positive. Instead of saying, you just made God so sad the way you poked your brother with that kebab skewer. You see, I told you we should have left them in Iran, Barb. I'm telling you. Oh yeah, one was walking around with a kebab skewer around the house last week, using it like a sword. If child services heard that, we took it right away and we put it back. Stand up and deep novels about terrorism. That's your job. I don't tell them what God doesn't like. I tell them what God likes. If I see that somebody just got slapped, I'll take one aside. Sometimes, sometimes. You see, you have to use it rarely. You, you can't use it all the time. God loves it so much when he sees two people showing kindness to one another. They can read through my words. It's up to them. And sometimes they ask. They'll say, so, so then is God mad if I one day, like maybe they might actually even get to that point when they're older where they might, they might piece together what I didn't say. And they might say, well, then is God mad that I didn't so-and-so? Even then I wouldn't say, no, God, I wouldn't say God was mad. I would say Judaism and the, and the Ten Commandments have these wonderful rules, my love, that we try to listen to. And one of those rules is to be kind to each other and to show respect to your mommy and daddy. 
God has blessed me with children. I'm making the conscious choice to heal my own childhood and create a good one for them. It especially helps when one of them looks like you. The little one looks exactly like me when I was little, even though he's a boy. When I look into his face and I'm either disciplining him or giving him love, I actually am, because he looks like me, I'm tearing up a little. I actually am able to go back and give myself the love. And you know my parents loved me, but in that moment, when you're five years old and your mother is saying to you, God saw what you just did, you question that. You question whether you're loved, whether you're worthy. And then you start thinking you're, you're some kind of wretched, you know, sinner. I'm and able to... And her love in those moments also because she was only doing what she knew. And I haven't dropped the F-bomb, used the word forgiveness yet in the podcast. Everybody has a right to be angry with their parents over things. I don't know anybody who, who doesn't have a little bit of anger towards something, just a little bit. With, with their parents over something, but freer than I've ever been because I'm able to go easier on my parents now. It's not, it's not just that they, they were trying to do the best that they had. I'm not excusing all of this and I'm not putting all refugees and immigrants in one category, but for I'll speak for our family. The fact that we came to America with nothing hmm. except 15 suitcases, but you know, not stuff that actually was, was worth a lot of money. We, ju- we had to jump right in. Um, we came three months before school started. I-, I didn't speak English. Can you imagine the anxiety of trying to enroll your child in a school when she doesn't speak English yet? Refugee families like mine don't have the time to sit there and read parenting books. Okay, I'm not saying non-refugee parents did, especially if the mother worked. My mother didn't work for years because you know she didn't have a driver's license. She couldn't speak English. Refugee parents escaped war, sometimes famine, revolutions. They're not going to come to America and start consulting child psychology books. I requested our refugee family folder from Hyas a couple of years ago. I sat there for three hours sobbing while I read these documents from social workers and our caseworkers. You know what my parents did in the three months we arrived in America? We were being checked for second level country diseases, second world. Iran's somewhere between second, not Iran's not third world. Tabby's father is out looking for a job and he, he was a chemist in Iran and these are the things that he can do. The mother is trying to take language classes at ORT. The children are being enrolled in Horseman Elementary School, a wonderful public school, because we're not, we couldn't afford you know, Jewish private school, a wonderful public school in Beverly Hills. We lived in the slums of Beverly Hills as they were known then, so that we could have proof of Beverly Hills residents and we could go to the public schools for free. Yes, there are slums. Yes, there were apartments, right? We lived actually... Uh, about two houses away from the L.A. city limit between L.A. and Beverly Hills. Refugee families land here with their, they have to start running. Nobody has time to read what, what to expect when you're expecting. Nobody is sitting there thinking, am I guilt tripping my child by weaponizing God? No, she has to learn English. Right. I have to learn enough English to find out how to buy her lunch tickets at school. These are, these are eat or be eaten situations. So when I say that I forgive my mom for not necessarily investing more in our emotional health. And mindfulness, right? (laughs) What the hell is mindfulness? (laughs) Mindfulness in in, in Persian means, I'm going to explain to you exactly how many cows died for that kebab to get to your table and how your dad worked so hard to put it on your plate. 
Which is pretty mindful, actually, when you think about it. It's better than being like, be one with the food. Like, you know, which one be actually one. is better for you? I don't know. Yeah. No, be one with the food. My mother was saving, serving us cow brain soup. I, I, be one with the food was not something, uh, you know. Although she did tell me the more cow brain soup I ate, the smarter I'd get. Um, you must have eaten some really smart cows because if you are... No, I'm actually still waiting on those results. They must have been rapper cows. We, we come to America in 1989. What's happening in 1989? MC Hammer is happening in 1989. LL Cool J is happening in 1989. Now, I was like, you know, six, seven years old. I wasn't ready to, you know, assume my rapper persona. But I want you to imagine you come from Iran where... Pop music is banned. The only actual music you could really play was like Islamic um, mosque music. Imagine trying to understand Michael Jackson lyrics when you don't speak English. Wow. It's already hard if you speak English. criminal. It took me 20 years and Napster in college to try to figure out what that man was saying. But so I, I spoke English and I was like, Annie, are you walking? Are you walking? Is she old? What's happening? <laughs> Billy Jean is at my door. That's so funny. I really thought that's what it was because of who, who I thought he was. I don't even know what the word lover means, but I was like, Billy Jean is at my door. That's so cute. I didn't know. And I would sing it like that. And my parents would be like, good job. If it makes you feel any better, I thought he was talking about a pair of jeans. Man must have really loved his jeans. But I am one of the only uh, modern Orthodox people I know who has no problem reading out of my morning prayer book and saying the holiest prayers. And, oh, then blasting, and then blasting Tupac out of my car. So cool. As I drive down, because I don't think they, in some ways, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. My mom went to Ross and bought a lot of uh, Adidas clothes for me. She also went to downtown LA and bought me fake Adidas paraphernalia. I knew that because um, a letter was missing at the end of Adidas. <laughs> um, Adidas. I, I, I wrote it on with a sharpie. Refu refugee resourcefulness. And my rapper name became Adid from Adidas. I used to have the white Jewish Ashkenazi best friend who also thought she was a black rapper. And we were the Beverly Hills Unified School District's answer to salt and pepper. I'm pretty sure when my parents escaped Iran, they didn't envision a future for me in which six years later, I would stand on a cafeteria lunch table and rap the first chorus of Shoop. Which is <laughs> Here I go, here I go, here I go. I'm seven years old. Shoop, shoop, doop, shoop. The point was it didn't matter. At least I had the freedom to do it. Yeah. You see? Yes. In Iran, you can't decide if you want to stand on a table and rap music. In America, at least you have that choice. And you wouldn't get acid thrown on your face if you were walking down the street with your head God forbid. properly. No, God forbid. Listen. What, what makes me cringe today is um that so many people put their head in the sand and say things like what right do we have to tell another country how to treat women or how to treat each other forget women and if that's happening in 2020 where a woman is walking down the street and gets acid permanently destructing her face for the rest of her life because she was wearing her hat a little too up here and some of her hair was showing, how is it not our responsibility to try to pass law to get that to not happen? And what kind of a world are we creating if 
were standing idly by. The U.S. cannot make laws for another country. Iran is its own sovereign state, and we can't tell them what to do in the sense of, you know, stop making women be forced to wear the hijab. Stop uh, making homosexuality a crime in Iran, hanging from, you know, cranes and nooses out in the street. We cannot tell another country what laws to create and then enforce. But what we can do is really, and this is so cliche, but I understood this when I came here, as the leader of the free world, enact policies towards that country that send a clear message that if you violate human rights, you will have bad relations with the U.S. economically, financially, militarily, right? So this is why one of the reasons not to get into the politics, but anyone who was concerned over human rights, even if they loved President Obama, even if they didn't, should have been against the um, Iran nuclear deal that he made in 2015, because a major aspect of that deal lack Iran's human rights record. We right? don't have to go there, but we I, don't, I... Right. And look, we, do, we, we, we don't have a relationship with Iran, meaning that we're not going to cut aid the way we threaten to do with Israel or, you know, somewhere else based on, on its, you know, policies or behavior. We don't give aid to them in the first place. We can impose sanctions. We can make the regime the pariah of the community. So in that, I don't know either what to tell one of, you know, your friends who says that it's not job, our job to police the world. What I would guess, Barb, is that person has a lot of emotionality, unseparated possibly from their feelings for, for Donald Trump. And that maybe if there was somebody else who they liked that was in power, they would be more forgiving if that president and that administration went after a regime that violated human rights. It all depends on who is pursuing it. If you believe the person is pursuing it as already some kind of uncouth monster, you're going to be even more against that. Whenever things like that happen, I think of you and how brave and courageous you are. Similarly to how I would describe someone who escaped the Holocaust, you were there. You were in war-torn Iran. And your soul must be very strong because I believe whatever the universe puts us through, we were ready for it. Uh, whether we believe it or not, whether we feel we're strong enough to have gone through the things that we went through, there's a reason for it. I've probably only tried to be free and feel free for maybe the last six months. Can you imagine three decades on earth and you finally started, and I'm, I'm not even halfway there, to unshackle yourself a little bit, you know? Um. I do believe it. And I think that that's part of the blessing of the pandemic because there's so many freedoms right now we don't have as a world. And you are allowing yourself to do the greatest thing that you can with it, which is go inside and be introspective and say, I have this time to reflect. I'm going to use it. I was the master of victimizing myself. I was the martyr to end all martyrs. I started reading some Viktor Frankl, who's a brilliant psychologist, was in concentration camps and came out of it and wrote Man's Search for Meaning. His whole notion that um, the freedom that we have exists in the attitude that we choose and our responses to situations finally set me free. Everybody is suffering from something in their own way. The ones who are suffering a little bit less, I don't think it's because bad things don't happen to them. I'm learning from them now, three, after three decades of being on earth, thank God, I'm learning from them that it's what they choose to make big and small in their lives. Yeah. yeah. If I can find resilience, I think I will have 
fulfilled one of my life's missions. Notice I didn't say I want to be happy. I, I, I don't want to be happy. I, I want to be resilient and the things that let you access happiness. Listen, one day I'll go into the Ayatollah's house. You know what I'm going to bring back with me? His kebab skewers. <laughs> don't give them to your son. Anyway, Tabby, it was such a pleasure to have you. I adore you. You make me laugh. You make me cry, but in the best way. You are a treasure, and I'm excited that even more people now get to hear your words and get to hear your voice and and see you in action. And I really look forward to reading that book of yours. So, thank you, and may, for your listeners, may you and your family be blessed with tremendous health and safety and inner peace and compassion and so i ask that you listen to more of barb's podcast it's nice to see your face Shabbat shalom. it was great to see you and here are some great golden nuggets of wisdom from the great tabby Raphael. not all jews came over from eastern europe and they had different traumas like the holocaust in other countries just like not all immigrants came to the united states from one place we all carry our own satchel of challenges from different places and as free as we may feel while we're here in the united states of america we all carry the burdens and difficulties and challenges from wherever we came her father once said i would have left again and again losing five times as much wealth as i did so that my daughters could be free the weaponization of God instills fear in young children. God could be perceived as an all-loving, wondrous God. Let's stop the cycles of thinking of God as pain-inducing, fear-mongering. And let's connect to the age-old vision of God as loving and unconditional. Her parenting style is, there are good choices and bad choices. Which ones are you going to choose? Be kind to immigrants. They don't have the time to read parenting books all the time. Tabby says that she is freer now than she's ever been because she's able to forgive her parents. She's able to forgive this idea that she had of God once before that was challenging. And she's able to release the chains of fear that she and her elder family members may have brought over with them from the old country. She says... The difference between someone who is suffering greatly and suffering a little is what we choose to focus on. As she learned from Viktor Frankl, someone who we've quoted before on this podcast, we get to be the deciders of what we focus on. What are you making big or small in your life today? What brings you freedom? May it be very good for this world and may you share it with others. If you'd like to connect with Tabby Raphael, please go to www.t as in toy, a, B as in boy, B as in boy, Y, R, E, F, A, E, L dot com. That's tabbyrephael.com. You can check out her blogs, her articles for the Jewish Journal, and someday soon, her memoir. Have a wonderful day. Happy Passover, everyone. May we all be free in always, always. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode could inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in always, always. always.